Our sermon today is taken from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Here's the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we are humbled, Lord, that you have given us your word to guide and protect us and to correct us when we are wrong, Lord. Father, it's been so long since we've been able to gather together and worship you and enjoy each other's fellowship properly, Lord. But even though we're limited, Lord, you are a limitless God and the power of the Holy Spirit will not be constrained by even the coronavirus or a virtual fellowship, Lord. But your word, your spirit dwells in your word, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we can taste and see the beauty of the Holy Spirit today as we ponder what does it mean to actually be called among your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I feel like I've mentioned this so many times in the past couple of weeks to people, but, you know, it's hitting me that in a couple of weeks, it'll be a year since I've actually physically been to church. Last year, on March 1st, I went to Thailand for a training for two weeks, right? And I was leaving Indonesia, this still a place that still has officially zero cases, and I went to Thailand, the country that was already infected with the coronavirus, fearing that I would get COVID there. But, ironically, somehow, Indonesia got, got COVID. And on March 11th, while I was still in Thailand, the WHO officially declared the coronavirus to be a pandemic. And I say this almost literally, friends, since then, it's been hell of a year. Certainly for a lot of us experiencing personal loss, and it certainly has been for the church in general, who's been limited in its ability to meet and to do ministry like it always has, and even CCC in particular, right? And as someone who works vocationally at a church, it's been quite interesting observing the change in the trends of the sentiments that people have towards being part of a church or participating in a church. You know, in the first few weeks, when we all believed that this will all blow over in a couple of months, we were optimistic and hopeful, right? We gathered daily for prayer and was longing and looking forward to the day when we finally get to meet again, right? At that point, we thought it was a couple of months. But as time passes and it dawns on us that things will be like this for God knows how long, and the coronavirus started affecting us personally, or at least a lot closer to home, the weight of the situation bears down more heavily on us, and the trend of sentiment became more bearish. And now the pandemic, no longer seems like just this distant threat, but an imminent danger, or even already a cause of traumatic loss. 
and the church, the gathering of God's people, wherefrom we receive grace through the act of worship and preaching of the word and love amongst those who are being saved, the place where we would usually turn to when we experience such seasons is the most limited as it has ever been as to what we can do and how effectively we can do it, at least on a pastoral level. Right? So we live in this reality, right, where more than ever, in my lifetime at least, the need for the gospel is most profoundly felt by seemingly everyone. But the church, God's institution that's meant to minister this hope from the word of God to those who need it, seemed to be as impotent and as absent as ever. Okay, so are we just supposed to live with this, right? Somehow, still try to be disciples of Christ while kind of reckoning with the fact that church is just not really a thing right now. What church was might seem like a religious YouTube channel right now that at best offers some kind of fellowship over Zoom or some virtual platform, which a lot of us have had probably enough of in the past year already. So to answer this question in a Pauline way, should we just live with this? We have to say, by no means. And today we'll be starting then on our mini-series on the Bible's teachings regarding the church, right? And the goal today and of this series in general, I think, is to refresh our vision of what being amongst the assembly of God's people is really like, right? Not only so that we don't lose sight of what we're being deprived of as we can't meet, but also so that we can be reminded of the ideal that we should be shooting for, even now as we assemble in whatever limited and less than ideal way. And so I think the most appropriate thing to do is to go back to the beginning, right? To remember what it was like when the Spirit first gathered and called God's new covenant people, which is exactly what our text that we're going to be thinking about today, Acts 2, verse 42 to 47, is talking about. Okay, so some background on this passage, right? This happened right after one of the most important events in history, when Christ has just ascended into heaven and God's Spirit has been poured out on God's people, right? and Peter just finished getting up and speaking this incredibly powerful sermon, calling the citizens of Jerusalem to repent and have faith in Christ, right? It is history's first kaka'er, its first spiritual revival, and on that day, God added 3,000 people into his flock. And in our passage, we see Luke tell us what the Spirit led God's people to do after receiving the gospel and then committing to follow Jesus, right? And from here, we can learn at least three things that are identic with the church, the ecclesia, the community of those whom God has called. Okay, so our three points for today. The ecclesia, right, the gospel community is one of fellowship, service, and witness. Okay, let me repeat that. And maybe uh, if you did Agama and you went to school in Indonesia, you might remember it this way, right? The gospel community, the church, is a community of koinonia, fellowship, diakonia, service, and martyria, witness. Okay, let's dive in to the word of God to see how this plays out. Okay, so point one. Right? The gospel community is one of koinonia, fellowship. So 
if you've just recently started getting and going into church again, right, you might notice that the church has a lot of its own jargon, right? These Christianese words that we throw out in a way that might seem foreign to people who hasn't grown up with church culture. And one such word that is most commonly used is this word fellowship, right? Now, when I, when I go to most churches, I think the word fellowship is now basically equated to hanging out, right? When I go to a church and when I hear that we're going to have a time of fellowship, that means basically that I can expect that we're not going to do anything theological or heavy, but it's more of a time of hanging out, right? And building relationships. Not that that's bad, but I think it gives us an inaccurate picture of what the Bible is talking about when he's talking about the fellowship of believers, or in the Greek, the koinonia. Because originally in Greek, this term koinonia is actually a commercial term, right? When you give something a share, uh, someone a share in something, right? Like a business or some profits, right? It's a kongsila, right? Where uh, we become united for a purpose with another person or group of people for a person or purpose that is greater than both of us or the sum of the total of its parts, right? And of course, for a church, this person this, that we're uniting under is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, brothers and sisters, the church exists because the worship of our Lord has not yet reached to the ends of the earth. Right? There are still yet people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who have yet to bow the knee and to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. There are those citizens of God's kingdom who have a share in our inheritance who have yet heard the call of their shepherd. Okay, so the fellowship, this unity and koinonia between believers extends beyond the walls of the church, right? It's this new relationship that we have with someone because of our common faith and commitment to Christ, right? And so because it is a gathering of people who are committed to the same thing, right? Necessarily, there needs to be some kind of event that gathers and celebrates this thing that we're united in, right? And how we participate in that is shown in verse 42, right? How the church participates in Christ. See, what was happening was, at that time in Jerusalem, the apostles were, you know, so charged with the Holy Spirit that they continued to preach the gospel wherever they went. Right? And how they would do this is that they would go to public places, usually the Jewish synagogue or places of worship, but in this case, the actual second temple in Jerusalem. And they would just start to teach and preach the gospel there. Even, verse 43 tells us, performing signs and wonders. Right? So then a ton of people heard them and saw this and came to believe. And eventually there just started to be this regular group of people who would go there to regularly listen to them and they would have a meal with each other, and they would pray together. You see, and this basically tells us what the three essential activities of the gathering of God's people will involve. Right? Firstly, it will involve devoting ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, to the Word of God. Right? Back then, we didn't have the New Testament in its current form, but the Holy Spirit directly inspired the apostles. 
But now, God, through thousands of years of history, has ordained that his teachings be preserved and given to us, right? Passed down from generation to generation, wherein we can receive the gospel and be empowered by the Holy Spirit and be called to faith, just like the church in Acts was. Okay? And so, through the apostles' teaching, what we inherit in our Bibles, we also have the ability and power to have the faith to see these signs and wonders in our lives, right? You know, um, but we often actually take for granted what is the most common and the most normal, I guess, sign and wonder that we can see. Yes, God can do extraordinary things that perhaps defies the laws of science or beats some incredible odds for your sake, right? But the greatest miracle that we can see constantly and we often take for granted is the miracle of the Holy Spirit himself turning a sinful heart who loved their sin so much, constantly justifying them and doing right for his own eyes and turning them into a heart that looks at Christ and lives and loves him and now is living for his glory devoting himself to the teachings of his disciples, expressing radical generosity, as we'll see later in verse 43, right? People who are living a life that is no longer weighed down by the burden of their sin, but are empowered to live freely as people who have been purchased and is now citizens of a heavenly kingdom and not of this earthly realm. So we must not take this for granted, friends. Every salvation, every repentance, every wound that's being healed in our church are these signs and wonders that we can see that validates the power of the Holy Spirit, right? That's why the apostles were able to do signs and wonders, so that people can see that they are truly empowered by God's Spirit, okay? So devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching is the most usual way we can actually um, participate and partake in this life-changing teaching that is identic with the gospel community, right? Through devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We can see also the miracles and wonders that it has potential to do. Okay, and the second way that the church we see in Acts gathers is by sharing a meal together, right? That's what the is meant by this breaking of bread. It's a very Jewish way of uh, saying having fellowship, communion, having a joint meal with each other, right? And this was a very big deal because it was a very big deal for someone Jewish to eat at the same table as a Gentile, right? It is a gesture of oneness and solidarity that communicates acceptance that transcends cultural and racial barriers. You see, and the original churches in, in the New Testament times would be some of the first places in the world where this would happen, where there'll be relationships that are formed across socioeconomic and ethnic lines, where a Jew and a Greek can share a meal just like a slave and a free aristocrat can sit at the Lord's table together and have fellowship. So brothers and sisters, the gospel community is not only a fellowship of believers that's learning together, but it is also one that displays the unity 
that the gospel teaches us that we have by eating together. Okay, this is quite an important and practical and frankly enjoyable way to participate and bond within the gospel community. Right? And we can see this in families. There are so many studies that have shown that families that eat together have closer relationships with each other. Right? That's why I want to commend our Deacon Willie, who after every single Zoom worship gathering asks us if we would want to go for lunch. Willie, you have a very biblical hunger right, to devote yourselves to the breaking of bread. Right. And this practice of breaking of bread together is actually related closely to our second point, which we'll get to later, right? this radical generosity that leads us to share everything with one another because we have a transformed understanding of what the highest good actually is. Okay, but we'll, we'll get into that more later. But first, the final essential activity that the fellowship of the church community is devoted to in um, our passage is the activity of prayer. So not only do we participate in Christ by deepening our understanding of him, uh, by studying the teachings of the apostles, not only do we participate with the members of the body of Christ by bonding um, over physical nourishing, like eating together or even um, general relationship, there's also community that intercedes on behalf of one another to God standing in the breach and bearing one another's burdens. And brothers and sisters, this prayer and this activity of prayer is not some reach, just some ritualistic thing that they would do, right? But it is born out of a heart that has changed because it has developed and in, internalized the gospel that the apostles were teaching, right? They were bonded together. And so inter intercession and prayer is an additional act of care for one another, you see? And then cost consistently and diligently praying for one another is another way that we participate in the ministry of Christ, Christ's high priestly ministry, who he himself is sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding on our behalf. Just like how when we devote ourselves to the scriptures, we are participating in his prophetic ministry. And when we're sharing and breaking our bread, right, we are managing the resources that our king has given us and using it to bless others. So brothers and sisters, we can see here that just from these two uh, verses, verse 42 and 43, that the Bible presents fellowship not really as something that you do, but it is really something that the church is, right? The fellowship is a group of people united under one mission and under one common interest. Just like in a movie, Lord of the Rings, right? The first movie is the Fellowship of the Ring. And the Fellowship of the Ring are these, you know, people from different races. There was an elf, there was a dwarf, there was a humans from like one kingdom and the other kingdom. And there was a hobbit. And then they unite together under one purpose, in their case, destroying the ring of power in that volcano place. But in our case, it is to make great the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Right? That is the purpose of our um, salvation. That is the purpose of our identity of the ecclesia, those whom God has called. 
And each gathering of a specific fellowship does involve specific activities and it does develop a specific culture that uh, is influenced by what it is it's gathered around. Okay, so for example, if you're a fan of football or soccer, as you Americans call it, right? if you're a fan of Liverpool Football Club, that might involve the activi activity of watching games together, singing You'll Never Walk Alone Together, and a culture of collectively hating Manchester United. But a fellowship formed around the Lord Jesus Christ will involve three things that we just talked about earlier. Serious study, meals together, and prayer, right? Creating a culture of learning, sharing, and caring, right? That's in this church. And participating in such a community, in this fellowship of God's people, has a result, and it's expressed clearly there in verse 43, if you would turn with me, right? That the result of this is that upon every soul came all. Now, in the Greek, this word is actually phobos, right? Where we get the word phobia. So it's really more like fear. But I don't think Luke here is talking about um, a feeling of fear, like some kind of terror, right? But I think it's more closely related to the idea of fearing the Lord. That is the beginning of the wisdom, right? Beginning of all wisdom that the Old Testament says, right? The idea of giving God the appropriate respect and reverence that he is due because who he is, right? It is seeing him for who he is and then adopting the appropriate posture of humility and obedience in response. Right? It's like this Isaiah 6 scene where Isaiah encounters the glory of God and he falls on his knees and says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Yes, you see? And then what happens? The result of having this fear of the Lord is realization of who He is. is a posture of repentance and worship. Knowing that it is by grace alone that we are standing before the Lord. Giving us this sense of awe. And that through the Holy Spirit in a very real way. I think if you've been going to church for a while, you kind of know what I'm talking about, right? And how when we go to church and we're really worshiping, we feel that there's this weightiness, this presence of the Lord, and we're just somehow really aware that God is there. And this feeling could be a convicting feeling, but it also could be a grateful and very joyful feeling. But in any case, I think we all can agree or have some sort of experience that there is a special presence of the Lord when people gather in His name. Our Lord Himself said in Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in My name, I am there among them. Right? It's not like God is not everywhere anyway. God is omnipresent, for sure. But I think the Bible is trying to indicate that there is a special kind of presence that happens when God's people meet for the sake of the Lord, not for the sake of entertainment, not for the sake of emotional relief, not even for the sake of good advice or company with friends, but really to do what these guys were doing in Jerusalem back then, studying God's word, sharing food with one another, having meals, and then praying with each other daily. This is very practical advice from our Lord here on how we can feel His presence 
and get back on track to being um, and living in a way that is appropriate to the calling he's called us to. You see, this is how we can feel like we're good with him again. Gather with God's people. And when we do that, when we gather in the assembly of God's people, the Holy Spirit will also testify its power. See, in the time of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit had to validate its powers through various miraculous signs and wonders. And now too, as, as we've discussed, the Holy Spirit continues to validate his power. There are no more apostles now that we inherit their teachings, right? Along with the prophets and the Torah, words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit himself that has the gospels that have survived thousands of years and the word that is mighty to save. So how does the Holy Spirit validate his power today? Right? I'm not gonna say miracles don't happen, right? Because I myself experience a miracle and have seen a couple and has testimonies from fairly reliable people that this has happened, right? Things that defied scientific explanation or all odds. But I wanna you know, caution us here to not put ourselves in a position where we need a miracle or when we are demanding God for a miracle, okay? Because there are many ways that God proves to us that he truly exists and he truly loves us, right? Everybody has their stories. But the point is that these stories themselves of how God made himself real to you and me personally is the sign and wonders of the work of the Holy Spirit that we see today, right? The lives that have changed because of the gospels, the sinners that have repented, the prayers that has been answered. Friends, there are the incredible things that the Holy Spirit is doing all around us if we would just take notice. And if we actually get to witness the work of the Holy Spirit, or better, participate in it, such that we see the fruits of it, we will see that the Holy Spirit himself is working in us. See, brothers and sisters, the testimony of our lives are themselves signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit works. And we must not and never take that for granted. So brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the gathering of God's people. When we gather, devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles, right, which is you know, to worship and proclaim the word of God, to share a meal together and to pray together, that God is especially present among us. And this presence has the ability to give us awe and change lives. And it is admittedly quite depressing that right now we cannot gather physically together and do this. Right? I know it's been hard for a lot of us and gathering over Zoom is just not the same, especially when people are now going through really hard times. And this is why the second feature of the ecclesia of the church is so important in times and seasons like this. So point two. The gospel community is one of diaconia, one of service. Look at verse 44. It says that believers had all things in common. Okay, this does not mean that everyone had the same opinions or interests, that it's just some homogeneous blob of people. Right? But it is actually about their mentality, about their wealth and possession. Right? You can read later, more clearly about what this involves in chapter four, right? They had their mentality 
this mentality that nothing is their own. Everybody's, everything was everybody's for everyone to use. Okay? And so we can see there that verse 45 actually explains how they applied knowing that they had everything and all things in common. Right? It says that they even sold whatever they had. They sold their own property to care for whoever it is that had its need. Friends, this mentality of radical generosity and truly gathering others greater than ourselves is what drives the second feature of gospel community. It's diakonia. It's service. You see, the church is called to live by this ethic of generosity, where there is no differential between your good and the good of others. If your brother in Christ is doing well, you are doing well. Likewise, if your brother in Christ is in need, then you yourself are in need, right? And this concept of, of a radical unity might sound crazy to some of us. It might even sound like communism, right? But it is actually the duty and the light of the church to be a blessing for others. In, in fact, it is the duty and the light for all Christians to do so. So, brothers and sisters, you know, if you are in need, and if you do need help either financially or just in fellowship or in prayer, do not hesitate to allow your brothers and sisters in Christ and even the church at large to come and comfort you. Do not be ngaenakan, you know, or or feel bad that you're burdening the church, okay? That's like feeling bad for asking me to play soccer with you because you're afraid I'm going to get tired, right? That's part of the deal. And it is our duty and delight, even though we exert effort to give you this care so that we can be the church and you can feel the fellowship of Christ that I and the church wants to feel with you. Because you see, the fellowship of the church extends beyond the walls of the church, it continues amongst the believers. And this care is not only the job of the church as an institution, but also of the universal church that Jesus died for and that they may be genuinely one body. If we're really different members of the same body, what is good for one member is good for the other member, right? There is this profound unity that we might have in Christ to the point where we might be willing to even sacrifice something like our property for the sake of each other. <laughs> Again, this might sound crazy because we're working really hard and it feels like we're barely making enough for ourselves. Right? And, and so there might be some resistance to radically sharing your life like this. So on the one hand, right, this brings us to a place where we must do some introspection if what we think of as enough is actually what God tells you is enough, right? whether it's minimal, reasonable, or too ambitious. And it also makes us question whether or not in principle or at heart we are living for ourselves and for our own glory or have we actually been transformed by God in order that we may take care of the body and bride of Christ. Right? There's this renewal of the heart. 
which wants to glorify God by loving others. Okay, now does that mean that you need to sell everything and give it to the church? As someone who works full-time as a church, I wish that this was true, but that is unfortunately not the case. Okay, because however much it is you give, I think the Bible clearly states that in principle, what God loves is a cheerful giver. So whatever it is, you've decided in your heart to give, not only through the church, right? There are certainly other places where you can steward and manage uh, the material possessions God has given you faithfully. But the church is truly one way that can help you do this, right? It is the duty and the light of the local church to take care of the needs of their members. Right? The church is responsible to use the funds given to us by our members for the sake of our members who are in need or in need of assistance. Right? So the so dynamic is the members ought to notify the church of this need and the church, specifically the office of deacons, would sort out how these funds would be distributed and how to best care for our members. Okay? So I know we might not have the capacity or even the time to help everybody out, but together we can do a lot. And doing this is an essential part of what it means to be part of the gospel community. So this idea of radical generosity that, uh, that the church economics is based on is radically counterintuitive and countercultural. Right? Instinctively, as humans, we would want to take care of us and our own first, right? To put the interests of ourselves and our groups above the well-being of other people or groups, right? And we live in a world where if, if we want something, we got to work for it, right? Nothing is just going to be handed out to us. And there's a limited amount of stuff out there. It is, this is the whole premise of scarcity and competition on which economics and innovation in this secular world is based on, right? And I'm sure all of us have worked very hard for what we have and we, we achieve, right? And there would be some hesitance to be so uh, nonchalant in distributing these things that we've worked hard for. Okay, so even though in the marketplace and in the economy, the, eth the, the ethics of God's kingdom doesn't make sense, but the kingdom of God has an entirely different economy. You see, because in the kingdom of God, if we truly and are citizens of the kingdom of God and believe in what the gospel says, we believe that it is God, out of his immeasurable riches, is the one who gives us all things for us to enjoy. He gives us plenty and he gives it to us generously. And our role is to be his vessel of blessing to the world. Okay, so within the church community, the economics is not in the context of scarcity and driven by competition. But it is in the context of the abundance of God's grace and is driven by our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. God is able to give more abundantly than we can ever ask or think. On the other hand also, we are called to be the family through whom all the families of the earth are blessed. These are the two forces that are driving the, these kingdom economics. 
right, and really applying the economics of the new heavens and the new earth in this heavens and earth is really hard, right? Because our society and our families might expect a lot from us. But, you know, something interesting that I learned when I went to Mozambique on a missions trip is I, I saw and I lived with a missionary that lived in a level of poverty that I could have never imagined a human being living in, right? And, you know, people over there would only have like one or two pairs of clothes to wear. Like it'll be like a cartoon character right? wearing the same thing every day. But these people who lived in mud huts, whose toilets were literally a hole in the ground, these people were able to show radical generosity and genuine joy. They even hunted a pig for us just because we're guests. They shared whatever food they had. And the church community assisted one another, right? One guy's hut was destroyed because it rained and a tree fell on it. Yeah, this is true. And what the church did is that they came together and manually rebuilt his house. Okay. You see the level of commitment and involvement that we have in each other's lives as the gospel community. Right? It re reflects the profound unity we have as one body. Now, I understand how these kingdom economics and the function of the church to be a blessing to all the world and especially to its members and, and to serve others is hard to apply in our lives. And how it is specifically applied in your specific context might be different due to various factors. So I don't want to bind your conscience to anything um, other or wider than what the Bible says, but I want to, do want to encourage you to consider what enough really is and whether or not your property or your wealth has been managed in a way that reflects the, econ the, the economics of God's kingdom and God's generosity from which you've, re which you've received it. Okay? Our Lord himself says, where your treasure is, your heart is there also. So where does your bills tell you your treasure is? Again, I'm understanding that this kingdom economics, this diakonia dynamic within the church is counterintuitive and countercultural, right? It was in their day too. It was unthinkable that a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-socioeconomic that's a word, community, right? Coming together for one purpose and then showing radical generosity to one another in equality, right? This was a revolutionary thing back in the day too. And if the church is truly able to do this, to show love towards one another and have and function in its diaconia, and then it's able to gather and worship devote themselves to the teaching of apostles as one body in its koinonia, then the church will be able to accomplish the third trait of the covenant community, right? The third trait. The covenant community, the ecclesia, is one of witness, marturia. Okay, the gospel community is one of witness. Point three. 
if you look at uh, verse 46, you can see that the activity of the church became a regular thing, right? It wasn't just a revival that boom, happened once, and then everyone was on fire, it was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then everyone kind of fizzled out. No, it told us that they would daily gather publicly right, in the temple, as we discussed in point one, and afterwards they would share a meal with each other. And in this activity, there was this gladness and gratefulness that is evident from this community that became attractive to those who are from the outside looking in. You see, in verse 47, Luke tells us, right, the posture that they adopted during these public gatherings and in how people perceive them. And in their public gathering, all they did was they lifted up Christ and they were praising God. That's how they participated in Christ. And in their faithful participation in Christ, they grew to have favor with all people. Now, notice here that the favor that the church received from our all people was not contrived. The church didn't change its identity. It didn't change its teachings or somehow found gimmicks or schemes to make people like them better. But this favor is an effect of the solidarity, gratitude, and gladness that exists among them because the Holy Spirit has led this church. You see, when the church regularly and publicly gathers in the name of the Lord and its members are participating in Christ and we see people like me, who if you knew me back then would be one of the last people you would expect to be standing up here. And we see that there is genuine change in people's lives and we see the shifts of people's actions and attitudes towards a healthier and more grateful demeanor in lives. We see wounds that have festered for years begin to heal. All of this, friends, testifies to the power of the Holy Spirit, not just to each other, but to the whole world. Okay, so although not every single one of our family and friends have faith in Christ and is part of God's flock, what every single one of them can do or should be able to see is that this Christianity thing has actually been pretty good for us. Because if we've been consistently walking with the Holy Spirit, what this will produce are the fruits of the Spirit. Love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. And Paul says in Galatians, after listing these things, that against these things, there are no laws. You see, these are all universal human virtues that are good and sought by all people in all places at all times times. See, so yes, you know, uh, this last function of the church, witnessing, marturia, it can never be separate from the Word of God, where, wherein we can find the apostles' teachings and the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power to save. Right? So every church, I must emphasize, must make every effort to do this as faithfully as possible. But what I want to highlight here is that I do not want us to underestimate how much power does the testimony of our lives validate the power validate the power of the gospel validate the authority and might of the god that we confess to follow see the church friends is supposed to be a countercultural 
community, but it is also supposed to be an attractive one. Okay? And, and it's not because how cool the band is that we're considered attractive or how eloquent or good-looking the preacher is or how numerous or famous the members are. But it is attractive because in this community, the gospel is being preached and lives are being changed. Therefore, God's sheep will hear God's voice and they too will come to his flock and will not perish. And friends, the great thing is, as we do this, as we perform these functions of the church, as the church in Jerusalem did, God is also working alongside us, being faithful. And we see this at the end of our passage in verse 47, right? That in the course of time, God added their number day by day, those who are being saved, right? Notice Luke intentionally placing God as the agent of the growth that the church experiences. It was God who added to their number day by day, those who are being saved. And this, friends, is ultimately the reality that brings comfort to the ministry of any church. It is the truth that we must cling tightly onto to be faithful in our ministry. That it is not ultimately our eloquence, creativity, money, charm, or intelligence that makes our ministry successful, but it is because this limitless God has empowered us through the Holy Spirit for His ministry. And by His grace, His gospel is still preached through these limited, imperfect, and perhaps often inaccurate word of people, someone like me. Right? So should we be actively trying to faithfully contextualize our culture and make our ministry more effective in the present time and place that we're in? Absolutely, right? But those efforts are not, is not what's going to save people. Because ultimately, friends, the church is the assembly of those whom God have called, not the assembly of those who we manage to convince that Jesus is pretty great, okay? And this is a comforting fact to us because we know that even something an institution as powerful as the Roman Empire or even the storms of the seas themselves cannot stop the Holy Spirit's work and the gospel from being preached to the ends of the earth. If that didn't stop the gospel, nor will our limitations, nor will our imperfections, and nor will the coronavirus stop God from calling His people. Amen? Because the reason why anyone is saved is because Jesus bought our salvation with his blood and guaranteed it on the cross. And he even was the one who sent his spirit to us that we might have faith in him. Okay, so this is going to be a cycle, friends, that, we, that the church in Jerusalem were able to see and we should be seeing in church. Right, the cycle of being devoted to the apostles' teaching, all coming on, and then people believing and getting baptized, and then them, these new people, coming and devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, this constituent cycle of 
being in awe of the Lord, sharing in love for one another, and then witnessing growth and change in their community, right? Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this such a sad thing that we have been missing out on as we were not able to physically meet together? So friends, I'm gonna ask you, are you longing for this kind of community? Or, or have you even ever felt what it's like to be in a community like this? Well, there's good news for you, friends. If you want to be part of this learning, sharing, and caring community, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. And so this fellowship is for you. The church is your family too, no matter how imperfect it is. So come in and you can sit at our table, right? We are family. But maybe some of you are like me and can often be in this season pretty discouraged and depressed at how much we're missing out on church and community in this pandemic and how, how much less of an experience of it we have, right? We don't get to eat nearly as often together. Uh, we can't even gather really safely with the, this peace of mind. And it's very hard for us, unless you very intentionally try to do it, to see the work of the Holy Spirit in the people that we love in our community. So if you have this anxiety and this grief, I guess I want to encourage you that this is a godly grief. You should want to be able to see this because the last thing that we want to be doing is be getting comfortable in our isolation, believing that we can still be members of the body and be fine while being apart from the body. And yes, we have to be apart right now for what hopefully uh, would not be that much longer. But during this time, I think the church needs to understand that we are injured, right? That we're not functioning normally as we should, right? And if you've ever had an injury, what you don't want to do is overexert yourself and force yourself to do more than you can and injure it again. But you, what you also don't want to do is to be overprotective of it and then compensate in other areas, right? So that you end up with a limp, which causes an, another injury, okay? What you need to do is you need to get your rehab stuff done, get your exercises in so that we can finally get walking back with proper form and proper posture. And so I want to ask specifically right now, the members of Covenant City Church, have we been limping? Have we done all we can to function as the church to, to whatever closely um, as possible way that we can considering the circumstances right now. If you feel like we haven't, if you have any ideas, we're all ears. Because I don't want to bind anyone's conscience to, and say anything like you got to go and endanger yourself by gathering together publicly somewhere. I don't want to do that. Let me clarify. But I do want us to consider and ask if we can take these baby steps, these rehab 
physiotherapy steps so that we can once again function like the church that, um, that it could be, right? And how it should be properly again, united in fellowship, mutually connected and dependent in service and witnessing to the coming kingdom of God. Right? The church must continuously strive for this, especially now when it feels like it has the least ability to do so. And friends, God has given us grace to do this because it is God who will himself ultimately preserve his church such that the gates of hell itself cannot prevail over it. Let us commit, friends, to koinonia, fellowship, diakonia, service, and martyria, witness. This is what we do, church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, your grace abounds more, Father, the more we question its power. And Lord, we are writhing now. We are not in a place where we can function normally as your community. And Lord, we long to share in this bond of fellowship with our brothers and sisters. So I pray, Father, that you can end this pandemic and that you can make it possible for us to meet safely and to rejoice in the assembly of your people um, as we have in the past and as we will in full when you return. But Father, uh, right now, as we are limited, I pray that you would give us grace and wisdom as to how we can, as an institution, but as individuals also, build this community of fellowship, of care, and of witness that you desire your church to be, Lord. Uh, lead us away from spiritual laziness, Father, and give us a hunger and thirst for the fellowship of believers, knowing that you are present with, it, with us when we gather in your name in a special way, that we may long for you, Lord, and long for the day when we can have full face-to-face -face fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.